Tonight we look at a story that Jesus told. Um, part of it is an interaction that Jesus is having with a, uh, a lawyer, a teacher of the law, a Pharisee. Uh, and then we'll look at Jesus' answer in just a moment. So this is the setup uh, to the rest of the story. Let's share in God's good word together. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Who exactly is my neighbor? Who, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Not in general. I want to know what is the lowest common denominator? What is the last little thing that I have to do to make sure that I'm okay? It's a common question. Over the next number of weeks, we're going to look at the very places Jesus went. We're going to look at the very words and teachings of Jesus, the places he went, uh, the people that he interacted with. Uh, these are places that Chantel and I visited firsthand a few uh, weeks ago. We want to begin to share them with you now. Uh, and, and this is going to be a four-week series. In, in truth, uh, we could preach 52 weeks on, on what we saw in 12 days. Uh, we will not do that to you. Um, but, but you could, you simply could, because we are about following Jesus, learning the things of Jesus, uh, and if you're interested in going with us uh, in 2017, we're, we're looking at putting a trip together, many of you have talked to us about that, you simply cannot hold it all in your head in one trip, so if you're interested in doing that, see Chantel or send her an email, and we'll start sort of a list uh, of people who might be interested, and we'll let you know more about that. Uh, but today, I invite you to take your sermon notes out, and we'll get started. Um, Eugene Peterson, whom I just adore his writing, he wrote the Message Bible, the interpretation uh, of the Bible called The Message. And he says this, all good stories have a beginning and an ending. Isn't that true? You, you hate those sort of to-be-continued stories. Uh, they drive me crazy. You, every good story has a beginning and an ending. And, and for us, Jesus' story starts in a cave, uh, in, a, in a manger actually. Uh, and what we found... Uh, is that this is what a trough would look like. This is what a manger would look like. Uh, Jesus, um, this was kind of messed up during the European period. Uh, they, you know, when you see the little wooden uh, crushes and the little mangers made out of wood, friends, there is no wood in Israel, almost non-existent. So more than likely, Jesus would have been a stonemason. Uh, they would have called him a carpenter, but, but really, uh, the manger probably would have looked like this, a place where uh, they would have eaten out of. And, and you can see they just, you know, hewn them out and, and have this little place. And what's interesting is it'd be perfect for a baby, for an infant. Um, it'd be just that size. You put a little straw in there, a little cloth, and voila, super crib, indestructible stone. is perfect. Um, and it would just fit baby Jesus just fine. Uh, these are actual um, pieces that we saw uh, at an archaeological dig in Israel. So uh, the beginning of the story is in a cave, in a manger uh, with Jesus, not in a palace, not where you might have thought. And at the very end of his life, it also ends in a cave, doesn't it? Ends in a cave uh, with a stone rolled away. And the cave would have been tiny. Uh, it, it was really uh, bewildering to, to me that I had to bend over at almost every stop. If you wanted to go into something that they had made, it's about four feet. And you just kind of got to get in there and you know, kind of look around. And so that, that is um, one of the places that they think Jesus 
may actually be the very place that he was laid to rest, uh, called Gordon's Calvary. And you'll see that there was a little stone I'm right next to it. Um, and that would have been rolled up uh, a little bit uh, and just to wait till they were able to put someone in there. And then all they had to do was release it uh, or move something out, a little fulcrum from in front of it, and it would roll right in. So it was real easy to get the stone down, but really difficult to get the stone back up. And so you can imagine the women on Easter morning when the stones rolled away, they were amazed, like, holy smokes, what's going on? So you see, every story has a good beginning and an ending. That's what it makes a good story. And for Jesus, it all starts and ends in a cave. But there's a lot of things that happen in the meantime. In, in the middle, between birth and death, from womb to tomb, there's a lot of life that happens. And that was true for Jesus. Now, uh, in truth, his, his public ministry was very short, only three years. Um, from about the time he was 30 to the time he was about 33 was his public ministry. And in the middle of Jesus' life, in the middle of every life, are problems. That's your blank there. It's a problem. In the middle is a problem. Every good story has a good beginning, a good ending, but in the middle there are problems. And for Jesus, oh my goodness, the problem was the Pharisees. The Pharisees wore him slick. If you look through the Gospel of Luke, for example, at every turn, at the beginning of just about every parable that you see, it starts with a Pharisee trying to get him in a trap trying to get him in a problem, trying to trip him up, trying to figure out a way to kill him. It was always the religious people that were in the middle of Jesus' business. They were his problem with a capital P. It was the Pharisees. And so in Luke 10, 25, the scripture that we looked at just a moment ago, uh, look what happens. Just then, a lawyer stood up to do what to Jesus? To test Jesus. Now, don't you hate that when your kids come to you with a question that you know is not really a question? You know, they, they're going to lead you to get that cookie or that extra piece of pie or that extra bedtime or that later curfew or that thing they want. You, they come to you and they ask you these questions, but you know that's not, they don't care about the answer to that question. They're trying to get you to another place so they can get what they want. This is what was going on with the lawyer. This is what was going on with the Pharisee. They wanted to test Jesus. So he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in truth, the teacher thought he already knew the answer to that. What he wanted to know is if Jesus knew the answer to that. Now, that's a problem. Because if you come to Jesus to test him, you're going to end up on the wrong side of that equation. We never come to Jesus to test him. Jesus is truth itself. Life, love, power, mercy. God himself from heaven to earth. So when we come into a relationship with Jesus, when we call him our Lord, that means we follow him. That means Jesus knows we don't. He teaches us, and we follow him. We don't come to Jesus and say, oh, hey, Jesus, I'm going to learn you on this deal. That's not how it works. And so this guy, from the very beginning of the story, was starting at the wrong end, starting from the wrong position. Uh, later, in just a few verses later, you see that this is sort of amplified. It says this, but wanting to do what? Justify himself. He wasn't interested in Jesus teaching him the way of life. He thought that he already knew it. And he was about to tell Jesus uh, why that was so, and he was going to prove it to him. He was going to say, look, I'm a good guy. Um, I don't care what anybody else says. I'm a good guy, and I'm going to prove it to you. So uh, I love the way the message puts it. Eugene Peterson translates it this way. He said he was looking for a loophole, right? There's a great uh, story on uh, W.C. Fields. Uh, later in life, he was known to be an atheist, and uh, he was flipping through the Bible, and a, a good Christian friend of his came out. He said, you know, Mr. Fields, what are you doing? He goes, looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes. We all do that from time to time. We want life, but we want it the way we want it. 
And, and so he, looking for a loophole, uh, the teacher of the law says, and just how exactly would you define a neighbor, Jesus? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm good, but let's, you know, just tell me exactly. So the temptation is that we want to test Jesus and to justify ourselves before him. But the problem is this is to be in opposition to Jesus' way. You can't test Jesus or try to justify yourself in front of Jesus and also call him your Lord or your Savior. Because if you're in that position, he's neither your Lord, your boss, nor your Savior. Because you're trying to say that you don't need saving, that you're all right on your own. And so to come at this this way was to actually be in trouble from the very beginning. Now, all these stories all happen in a context, and, and, and they're looking for a way out. This, this teacher was looking for a way to get around Jesus' teaching, to get out away from following him. And, and Jesus is, is trying to find a way to, to teach and to let people know what life really is. Now, again, Eugene Peterson would say this, that there's a salvation plot, and normally salvation plots in any good story, it's either a battle, right? I mean, if you go to the movies, there's these big battle scenes. Um, and like Braveheart, that's a battle. And so you have winners and losers that, or you have a journey, right? It's kind of the difference between guy movies and chick flicks. But you have battles and journeys, and every story is either a battle or journey in the middle of it. And we all have this. And so Jesus starts to talk about a journey uh, that a man took from Jerusalem to Jericho. The land, the geography itself, will tell you a lot about what goes on with Jesus. The land is the fifth gospel. And so I want to show you a little bit about that fifth gospel and hopefully share some of this with you. This um, is right on the edge of the Judean desert. Now, what's interesting is um, a lot of times when people make movies about uh, the Holy Land, you'll see like the wise men coming through sand. There's no sand in the Judean desert. It's all uh, rock. And so that's, that's the thing is that people will say, oh, look, you know, it, it's so rocky in Jerusalem uh, or around Israel. Friends, it's not so much rocky as it is one solid rock. It's just a rock. I could not figure out how in the world anyone could ever um, get away with murder because there's no place to bury the body. Just be like, dink. I mean, you can't bury him. It's just solid rock pretty much everywhere you go. And so this was taken right out of the bus. It's, it's not a great photo at all. But as you drive by, I mean, try to think of Arbuckle Wilderness with no topsoil, right? It's just, it's just rock. And so um, basically what they would have to do is they would have to dig holes in the sides or tops of mountains uh, in those rocks and bury people in the caves. I mean, everything was pretty much in a cave. You were born in a cave. You died in a cave. Um, that, that was it. And, and they would, no one was buried underground in, in the whole country. It, it's all rock like that. Let's go to the next one. So if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's only one problem with that, and that is mountains. Um, the, the thing is, the Syrian and African Rift Valley come together, um, and you have mountains on either side of the Dead Sea, either side of the Sea of Galilee. And so if you were Jesus and you were on the Sea of Galilee, you can see that it was flat and lush. You can see those really tall, huge palm trees at the bottom. But then it's just mountains. And so if you were Jesus coming from the Sea of Galilee area, um, you would have to leave there and go to Jerusalem. You would do that by way of Jericho because otherwise you would have to go through Samaria, which was not allowed because Samaritans were unclean folks. Uh, it was, again, over the mountains in a different way. And so what you did was you went as far down um, where the water was until you had to make a, a hard right turn to go up and through the mountains. And it was treacherous and dangerous, and everybody knew that. 
And so it was on our way from Jerusalem to Jericho uh, that we went with Dr. Tom Harrison out of Asbury United Methodist Church in Tulsa. It's one of our great flagship churches. And, and Tom is one of the kindest, most wonderful, gracious people you'd ever want to meet in your entire life. So he stops on the way. And in the background, you can see a monastery, an active, real monastery. There are monks that live there um, out in the middle of nowhere in the side of the Judean desert. Um, and behind him, if you zoom in, uh, you can kind of see... Um, that there's a path that goes along there. And if you zoom in even further, uh, you'll be able to see there's a little riverbed that goes right along there. And so what people did was, one, if you started to make a trek from Nazareth, for example, to Jerusalem, would be a nine days journey by foot or on donkey. Okay? And so the biggest thing about that is you try not to die. That's the biggest point. And because the thing is they get two inches of annual rainfall, Almost all of the rain comes, or not rain, water actually comes from Mount Hermon, which is snow-covered, and it filters down and comes down the Jordan River to the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. And so the thing is, you have to find water. I mean, if you're going to make it from where Jesus lived up around Capernaum and Nazareth, and you're going to make it all the way a nine days journey to Jerusalem, you had to follow um, the water. And so you can see there Mount Hermon all the way at the very top, um, and it filters down into uh, the Jordan River, which goes to the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, um, and then on down to the Dead Sea. Uh, and so you, uh, right there at the top of the Dead Sea, you can see Jericho um, right there, uh, sort of where the flatland is, and then you can see that mountain range and Jerusalem on the other side of it. So it's a very, very difficult, treacherous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so it's in this context that Jesus replies to this teacher. It's in that land. It's in that landscape. And Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, okay? And he falls into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the hearers of the story would have been concerned at that, because one, they're going to ask themselves, why is that guy alone? No one travels that road alone, because you can't tell where the next turn is. They know you're going to follow the riverbed. All they have to do is wait in the hills, come down and get you. You can't see them. They can see you coming miles away. And so it's like, well, who is this guy, really? But he's, he's half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on, on the other side. It went all the way around. Like, wasn't going to have anything to do with him. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, now, you will remember that a Samaritan was a hated foreigner. This is somebody who they intentionally went down this road so they didn't have to deal with Samaritans. The other way, the Samaritan way, could have been uh, easier in some ways. But nobody did it because you couldn't hang out with Samaritans. They were considered unclean, uh, very hated people uh, by the Jews. But this is interesting. A Samaritan, while traveling, that comes near him. When he sees him, he was moved with pity, charity, compassion, mercy. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he, he poured oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. And then Jesus asked the lawyer this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And then the Pharisee was stuck. He's in this public conversation with Jesus, and Jesus has him. He's like, oh, man. The one who showed him mercy, I guess. You know. And Jesus says to him, go, do likewise. And that ends the reading. Now, if you're following along in your sermon notes, here, here's the trick about this. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level. I mean, it's way up uh, along the mountain range. Jericho is nearly 1,300 feet below sea level next to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is about 1,400 feet uh, below sea level. 
So that's a drop of roughly 3,600 feet in less than 20 miles. It is steep. It is a difficult, difficult trek. And so what we find is the priest represented the highest religious leadership. And so you think of, of someone who's very religious, uh, and Jerusalem is a very religious town. Here's the problem. Anyone who touched a dead man was unclean for seven days. Now, if you're on a nine-day journey and you accidentally touch a dead guy, you're now on a 16-day journey. That's a problem. You can miss the whole thing. If you're supposed to be at the temple at a certain time, you've missed it. The whole festival is over. So to go to this guy, because they can't tell whether he's alive or dead, I mean, it's just good sense. I mean, this is a very important religious figure. He's going to the temple. It's an important time. He's going. He sees somebody, you know, it's kind of like moaning and like, well, I don't know. He might die any second. And if I go over to touch him and he dies... I mean, I'm a week out. I mean, this is a whole other deal. So he goes on the other side. Well, then there's the Levite. Now, the Levite was a designated lay associate of the priest. It wasn't a priest, um, but was very close to that. Uh, and the Levite knew very well that when you traveled that road, um, it was, was kind of like happens today. Someone, you, you've heard where they'll kind of like bump your car and act like they've hurt their neck, and then when you come to check on them, they steal your car, that kind of a deal. That's what was going on the Jericho Road. People faked you know, being injured all the time along that road. And so the Levite's motto was, hmm, safety first. You know, I might help him, but it just doesn't look safe. You know, it's kind of the suburban way. I mean, we, you know, we would like to help, but, you know, that's not a great neighborhood. I'm, I think I'm going to stay on the Broadway. I'm going to go from here to here. I mean, it's just a very, you know, no-nonsense, very thoughtful, you know, good people. I mean, the priest is not a bad guy. The Levite's not a bad guy. We don't need to paint them. Uh, in, in some horrible way. Jesus isn't trying to make them bad people. He's just saying what it is. Look, this would have been very inconvenient and kind of risky, so no, we're going to go around. And then the hearers hear the third person. Now, in these three people stories, what you expect is the first person does this, the second person does that. Now, the third person is normally the villain. I mean, if I was a Jew and I heard the Samaritan was coming, what I thought was, and the Samaritan finished him off. I mean, that's kind of where you thought that story was going. And Jesus absolutely flips it on its head wowed them. They, they absolutely could not believe it. So the Samaritan, this hated foreigner, is this third person in the story. They would have expected the villain, but that's not what happens. He shows them mercy. And in that day, he gives him oil and wine. And these were ancient medicines. Uh, they were wonderful. And so he was prepared to help. Imagine that. Uh, this, this foreigner that nobody knew out of, out of a whole other way. Now, there's another piece to this um, that I find true. Because in the biblical stories, it's alive. It's not a dead text. It's an alive text. And so it's easy for me to think of myself as the priest of the Levite because that's the role that I have. I mean, I'm a priest, and many of you all are Levites, and, and I get that. Um, when we were in Israel, I was a Samaritan. I was an American uh, in the Middle East, and so I was in a different role. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is, in, in some of my other moments, I'm kind of the beat-up guy. You know, you're just having a bad day. And one of the questions I've come to ask myself is, if I'm having a really bad day, you know what God does sometimes? The very people that I think are going to help me, the priest and the Levite, the people that I run with, the people that I should get help from, they don't help me and I get really angry or I get really despondent. And, I, and I'm so upset that, you know, the very people that you would think would help you don't help you. And you know what God does? He brings you a Samaritan. You would never see it coming. And then you've got a question to ask yourself, am I going to receive God's help from that person, from that kind of person? And he does, and it works out very well. So point two is this, friends. There's a big difference between Jericho and Jerusalem. There just is. Jericho is one of the world's oldest cities. 
If you were to go and look through the digs at, at Jericho, there are 23 layers of civilization dating back to about 8,000 BCE, before Christ, before the Common Era. 8,000 years. Many people believe that Jericho is the oldest city in the world. Uh, and most of its history is not Christian uh, or even Jewish. I mean, there are times that it is and there's times that it's not. It's not even a place that we went to go see. We simply went right by it. Um, but it's a beautiful place because, uh, because the water actually goes there. There are big, beautiful palm trees and dates and fig trees. And it's a very lush, you know, land flowing of milk and honey kind of a deal. It's one of the oldest cities. But it's not very religious. It's a city um, that does all the things that cities do. And then there's Jerusalem on the other side of the mountain. Now, Jerusalem is the world's most religious city with the holy sites for Jews. There's a Jewish quarter and a Muslim quarter and a Christian quarter. I mean, and folks are packed right on top of each other trying to get to the exact same holy sites, right? Everybody wants to be where the Dome of the Rock is, where, um, you know, the very Holy of Holies was, where the temple was, where Jesus came and preached. All, all the monotheistic religions want to be right there. It's a very religious place. And, and when I say it's religious, I don't mean that that's a great thing. Religion is supposed to connect us to God. It's supposed to fill us with love and compassion and mercy. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. There's a big difference between Jericho and Jerusalem. And the road between the two in all of our lives can be somewhat treacherous from time to time. Especially if you don't know how to navigate that. And, and the truth is, friends, we all live between Jericho and Jerusalem. Every one of us. We all do. That's point three. All of us. And Jesus is going to judge us not by our creed, but by our life. Those of you who have been with me for a long time uh, know one of my favorite studies of all time uh, was a number of years ago at Princeton University. There were two psychologists, and they decided to conduct a study inspired by the biblical story of the Good Samaritan in the New Testament Gospel of Luke that we read tonight. Basically, what they did was they had a group of seminarians. Imagine this at Princeton Theological. And they asked each one to prepare a short, extemporaneous talk on a given biblical theme. And then they were supposed to walk over to a nearby building to present that talk. Now, along the way uh, to the presentation, each student ran into a man who was slumped over in the alley. It was a setup. His head was down. His eyes were closed. He was coughing and groaning. The question was, who, which of those seminary students would stop and help? That's what they wanted to know. And so they introduced three variables into the experiment to make the results more meaningful. First, uh, before the experiment even started, they gave the students a questionnaire about why they had chosen to study theology. Did they see religion as a means for personal and spiritual fulfillment, or were they looking for a practical way uh, to find everyday life more meaningful? And then they varied the subject of the theme that they were going to talk about. Some were asked to speak on the relevance of the professional clergy. Um, others were given the parable of the Good Samaritan itself. Finally, the instructors uh, gave the experimenters to each student. They varied as well, like what they were going to do. And this is where it gets interesting. In some cases, they sent the students on their way, and the experimenter were, would look at his watch and go, Oh, no, you're late. Uh, they were expecting you a few minutes ago. You better get moving. In other cases, uh, the psychologist would simply say, Oh, it'll be a few minutes before they're ready for you, uh, but you might as well head over now. Now, which of the people... And all those variables, do you think, uh, stopped and helped the guy? Maybe the ones that, you know, wanted to make a difference with their life. Uh, you know, maybe ones that really thought God had a call on their life. You know, we would, we would kind of think of those things. Maybe, maybe the person who's about to preach on the Good Samaritan. You know, they, they might be you know, sort of salient in their mind. In fact, none of those factors made any difference at all. None of them. 
But it's hard to think of a context, isn't it, in which norms concerning helping those in distress are more salient than for a person thinking about the Good Samaritan. That's how Malcolm Gladwell writes it in his book, The Tipping Point. This is what they found. He says, on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim on his hurried way to present the Good Samaritan story. Really, a few years ago at Princeton Theological. The only thing that really mattered was whether the student was in a rush. That was it. Of the group that they had, 10%, one out of 10 stopped to help, that were in a rush. Of the group that knew that they had a few minutes to spare, 63% stopped. 50% difference. Pretty big difference, huh? 10% if you're in a rush, 63% if you're not. And what the study is suggesting, in other words, is that the convictions of your heart and the actual contents of your thoughts are less important in the end in guiding your actions than the immediate context of your behavior. The words, oh, you're late, you better get going, had the effect of making someone who was ordinarily compassionate into someone who was indifferent to suffering. That's what he found. Just because we were in a hurry. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. All of us live between Jericho and Jerusalem, and things come by our path all the time. The question is, are we in a hurry, and do we see them or not? I'll t- let me tell you a little bit about my week. Let me tell you about my week. This week was uh, conference week, like I said, and it, it was great in a lot of ways, and I got to see a lot of people, but it's exhausting. I'm not a good sitter, and so you're sitting there in, in really hard chairs in the gym floor, and you're just... You know, sitting and waiting, sitting and doing. And then at night, there, there are oftentimes uh, worship services. And those are amazing and great. And so on Wednesday night, some of you remember Reverend Tate used to be on our staff. Uh, he was ordained elder. And so we're very excited for him. And he asked that I would come alongside of him. Oh, by the way, I, I wear a robe once a year. There it is. Uh, when we all gather. And so Chris asked me to uh, be the elder who laid hands on him. And to uh, allow him to, to be uh, an elder in the United Methodist Church. Uh, me and our boss. Uh, Rockford Johnson uh, and his senior pastor at Chapel Hill, Robert Rose. We all did that together. It was a great, great night. Uh, the night uh, before that, uh, we had voting. And the voting went until about 1130 down at OCU. Uh, Chantel and I got home uh, about um, well after midnight for sure. I uh, didn't get to sleep until uh, nearly 2, uh, just kind of winding down. And then the thing was, we had a, a young lady in our church that was having a very important surgery, a pretty you know, in-depth surgery uh, at 6 the next morning. She had to be there at 6, and so that meant I had to be there by 6.30. And so those of you who know me well know I don't do well on four hours of sleep, but that's what was going to be required to pull that off. So we did that. And I'm in a suit every day too, which is not normative for me. Uh, and, then, and then the next night went late, and then the next day, uh, Carrie Barclay had her surgery again at 6 in the morning. This time it was at Lakeside, so I didn't have to be there quite as early, but, you know, about 6.30 again. So in two days, I'm running about, you know, six, eight hours of sleep, and you know, kind of getting there, and I could not wait for today. I was so excited today because we had no surgeries early, and I didn't have conference. I could actually start my sermon for you tonight. And so, I, and, and all the staff's getting ready, and all staff's doing that stuff. And so, um, I finally got all the phones off and all the stuff, and everything was where it was. And uh, the Simons had their baby, which were very excited. And Andy and Chantel were going to go see them and see the baby, bless them. And, and so, that was great. And then, as I looked up, there was a family in the lobby. 
uh, that needed help. Now, I would remind you that I had just pulled that study of Malcolm Gladwell out, read it on my desk, and, and read the words, you know, that really the only thing that keeps you from being compassionate and helpful and loving, doing the things Jesus wants you to do, is that you're too busy. And there they are. And I ask them what they need. Uh, and uh, the other staff's all out doing good ministry all over town. Uh, and they say, well, uh, my wife really needs some help. She's really hurting. She needs some medical care, and we need gas, and we need food, and uh, we've been living in our car for three weeks with three dogs. And uh, they, they need some help. And I was like, you quit it, you know? Because I was busy. I mean, I was under the gun. I had a lot to do before you all at 6.30 tonight. And, and then there they are, Chesney and Christy, and they need help. And so um, I call some uh, doctors in our church and say, you know, how do I get these folks help? They, they don't even have ID on them. Um, and, and what, you know, where do I have the best chance? And I said, well, what about here? And they said, no, you know, by law, they're not allowed to turn them away, but they do. That's just the truth of it. If they can't pay, uh, they're not legally allowed to turn them away, but they find other ways around that. People like them can't get medical care in our country, not in Edmond, very easily. They said, well, we might try this place locally. And I, and, and so we did, and I took them, uh, there because they were more likely than the other places I had mentioned, which would have been easier, uh, to get them some care. So I take them over there and we get them checked in. Uh, and I, I, would ju- I just need to be honest with you. Uh, it was 2.24 by that time. I was feeling a lot of pressure about getting back here, getting ready for tonight. Um, and so, but no, I'm driving to get them. You know, They need gas, get them checked in, see what they need, and get them in, into the ER, and I'm dealing with their puppies. <laughs> now, they are super cute, but if you haven't smelled the inside of a kennel after three weeks... Friends, I, I, I'm not proud of that. I mean, I, I physically could not be within 10 feet of them for more than about 20 seconds at a time. I would literally have to walk away uh, so that I could not mess up my suit. It, it was just that painful. I knew, and they showed me her leg. She needed incredible care. She needed to be admitted, uh, in, in my non-physician opinion. Um, and so uh, we did our best to get her admitted. We, we got her checked out. Uh, she immediately got a shot. They were concerned about her. Um, got her antibiotics. Uh, and this is, this is really cool, friends. Uh, I called our prayer team on the way over, um, and I didn't tell them anything about this family other than that they needed help, and I was praying for them and praying for the doctors and that they could actually get some help. And uh, one of the ladies on the end of the prayer line said to me, she goes, is she built about like me? And I said, actually, she is. And she said, you know, I just put uh, a set of clothes in two bags. The Lord just led me to do that. So I've got clothes that she can change into if you want to get her those. And I said, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be by your house in 10 minutes. So we got them checked in. I called Andy and I said, help, you know, we need to switch. I got to get going. And so we're doing that. I go and I get clothes. So this lady now has gas. She has medical care. Uh, she has antibiotics. And she has a new pastor to check on her and clothes to wear uh, and some medicine and some other toiletries that, that they may need. Okay? Now, this is what you need to understand. That Jesus' teaching is that we must be prepared to help even if people bring it on themselves. I don't know their backstory. I don't need to know their backstory. And neither do you. Jesus asks us to help even if people get themselves in a hard way on their own. Secondly, our neighbors are from every place on the planet. There's not a place that you don't have a neighbor. 
Anywhere you are, you have a neighbor. And if the Lord brings it across your path, Jesus' teaching is that we're to stop and help. And the third is that it needs to be practical. Uh, I could have prayed for those folks, and I did. You know, Andy and I prayed for them, and we're blessing them, but we're also making sure that they were getting some help. But I also need you to know how that story, how that story ends. And that is, uh, Andy's run late. We're not sure he's going to be able to make it for a service because he's trying to get them to the city rescue mission because the best chance for their medical care uh, when Andy stepped out of the room gave them the boot and, and didn't care for them, did not admit them, right? Because they figured out a way to move them on down the road. And so Andy took them and got them their meds and was going to take them down to city rescue mission. And so he's having them fall them down after getting them gas. And um, rather than getting them in the shelter tonight, guess what? They just disappear. Because that's what happens most of the time when we try to help people. They're really hard to help. What do you do with that? Now, here's the thing. You don't get the fairy tale ending with Jesus. You don't. You may, but it's pretty rare. If you're going to stop and help people that need help, it's going to be hard to help them. It just is. But this isn't something that Jesus just tells us to do and then doesn't know anything about. Remember that Jesus has walked this road himself. And so if you go further down in the Gospel of Luke, this is what you find in Luke 18. As he, meaning Jesus, as Jesus approached Jericho, uh, in, in another Gospel it says as he was leaving Jericho, so we don't really know whether he was headed one way or the other, but in any case, he's around that very dangerous road. And he's traveling with these characters. Can you imagine Jesus on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho? And yes, there's Peter. He's with his sword. I'm ready to cut off somebody's ear, you know, walk, walking down. And then, of course, there's Matthew. And he's like, you know, we should set up a toll booth. We can make a lot of money, you know, on this, get, you know, get him down. And, of course, there's Thomas in the back going, this is never going to work. You know, I just don't know. I just doubt it. And so Jesus is with this cast of characters, you know, trying to move through. And as he goes by, there's this crowd. And, and this, this blind man says, hey. You know, who is this? And they tell him Jesus of Nazareth, which is really a put down because Nazareth is a nowhere town. And then he shouts, Jesus, son of David, which is a high title of praise, have mercy on me. And those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he shouted even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, he knew who Jesus was. He knew the power that Jesus had. And when you understand who Jesus is and what he can do for you, your world will change if you're open to it. If you're open to it. And Jesus stood, and he ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, he says, what do you want me to do for you? That's a good question. What do you, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it. Praise God. Now, what is easy to miss on this is Jesus is on the same Jericho road the guy got beat up. You understand this? He's in just a dangerous position as the Levite, as the priest, as a Samaritan, and Jesus is walking this out. And he doesn't know exactly how it's going to end necessarily. But there's a man calling out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, and he does. We call ourselves Christians, Christians, little bitty Christs. And so what that means is when we're on the Jericho Road, and we all are, in that space between the world and religiosity, either in fullness or bad places to be. We're all on that road in between somewhere. And every once in a while, not every day, but every once in a while, Jesus is going to lay somebody right in your path. And then Jesus is going to ask you, what are you going to do about it? And he's not going to just tell you a story. He's going to go before you, and he's going to do some healing and touching and loving and caring and mercy and compassion, and then he's going to ask you to do the same. Because that's who Jesus is. That's who we're to be. 
In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen.